This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is South Dakota U.S. Senator Mike Rounds. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is working toward a global subsidy ceasefire. Learn more about the Zero for Zero plan at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Senator Mike Rounds next. Sugar subsidies in 120 countries are on the rise and threatening 142,000 U.S. jobs. That's why the American Sugar Alliance is pushing for a global subsidy ceasefire. Their goal is a subsidy-free world market that fosters efficiency. And they know that unilateral disarmament of America's no-cost policy without concessions from abroad will only outsource U.S. jobs and reward foreign subsidizers. Their plan is called the Zero for Zero Sugar Policy, and you can learn more at sugaralliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. South Dakota U.S. Senator Mike Rounds says crop farmers in his state have suffered from a very wet growing season, resulting in 4 million prevented planted acres and a loss of global markets for their crops due to trade wars. While the Farm Bill's risk management tools have helped, he says they can't possibly replace both lost crops and markets. Well, even this year, because of the changes in trade policy and the challenges with trade policy, so many of our producers have felt like they're on the tip of the spear in the fight that we're having right now, the trade war that we're having with China. The farm product itself, the farm policy itself, was not adequate to meet those needs. And that's one of the reasons why the MFP, Market Facilitation Program, has been helpful. And it's added some additional resources in for a number of our producers you know, that, that are in the farm program. But it's still not going to make up long term for having a good price for the commodities that are being produced. Our producers just want those open markets, and they want to be able to trade around the world. We produce some of the finest quality products any place in the world, but if, because of artificial issues going on, such as the trade war that we've got with China or the fact that we're not a member of TPP, uh, those things have a tendency to reduce the value that we're able to receive on our products. And when we've got other countries, such as Australia and so forth, that are competing in those areas, that gives them a leg up on us. So with regard to that, yeah, the farm program is good, but in a year like this, it was not adequate. I read your weekly column back in July, and then I read your weekly column again at the end of October, and on both of those, you said it was time for USMCA now. I would assume it's past time now, Senator. No question about it. We've been waiting almost a year for USMCA to pass the United States Congress. It is languishing in the House of Representatives. Uh, we continue to call on the Speaker to bring it up. We think the votes are already there, but I think perhaps what the Speaker is looking at is she needs a majority in her mind, I think, of Democrats and Republicans, not just primarily with Republicans and a few Democrats to pass this. I know that there's a discussion, and you know, look, politics always comes into play. The question I'm sure that some people have is, is, is this giving the President a win? But the reality is, we need the USMCA. It is a better trade program. It's one that will help. Uh, we do nearly a billion dollars in trade out of South Dakota alone between Canada and uh, Mexico. They're, they really are our closest trading partners. I think once the House passes it, it'll be out of the Senate within two weeks. And, and we'd love to have this all done before the end of the year. Normally, it's the Senate that takes time to get stuff through, but 
we're waiting on it, and we think uh, we think it'll pass out of the Senate very quickly. So once the Speaker feels she can move it, we think she ought to get it on the floor, get it passed, and get it over here where we can pass it out, and people can start having some consistency, and they can start seeing that first big trade deal coming through. And I think that'll really help the markets as well, not just the stock market saying that trade policy is moving forward and that we're trying to work together beyond uh, the partisan activity. But it would also send a really good message, I think, to our commodity markets as well. Do you think we're past the concerns over the agreement and really into politics? I think there are some people who legitimately have asked questions about it, but I don't think that's what's holding it up. I think this is a matter of politics right now. I think this is a matter that the Speaker clearly has to make sure that she feels as though she is supporting uh, you know, the people that elected her, and, and these are her Democrat colleagues, so that they feel that their questions have been answered and that, uh, you know, she'll have a majority of Democrats and Republicans in order to move this forward. And, you know, I, I may be missing the mark on it, but I, I think that's the, the, the sentiment in the Senate is, is the Speaker wants to have a good majority of both Democrats and Republicans and not just pass it with primarily Republicans. What if this is delayed into 2020? I think it's devastating because I think it sends a message that as we move into the political, the real political season, not to have the USMCA completed uh, sends a terrible message to other people that are trying to negotiate trade deals with us. We've said in the past that there are two types of deals. There, there are the political deals which last through the time of an administration. There are others which are actually passed with consent of the House and the Senate, and those are the ones that consistently survive. We want that consistency, and we want those good trading partners. The original NAFTA was not perfect, but it most certainly was one that stood the test of time. Years later now, we have USMCA, which makes improvements. And these help people on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat. And uh, the improvements that have been made doesn't mean that it's perfect. But any negotiated deal you do with another country will always have things that you wish you could have done better. But you have to look at where we are today versus where the new program will take us. And USMCA clearly provides for additional assistance for people that are in manufacturing and people that are in dairy and, uh, and in poultry as well. If the president came to Yankton or another town in Sioux Falls and had a town hall meeting, what would your constituents say about the trade war with China? Here's what I think they would say. They'd say, number one, we understand the reason why you're doing this. We understand that they're stealing our intellectual property because it is, it's close to $600 billion a year right now, that they're stealing. We also understand that their tariff rate was at 4% uh, that they were getting on their products coming in, and it was 10% going over to China. So we understand that that's not right and that somebody needed to fix it. What they believe is, is that he was right in trying to fix those problems. What I think they would challenge the president on would be, but how come we don't have it done yet? And how come we don't have the rest of the world with us on trying to get this done? And so what we've suggested has been, you know, look, the president's absolutely right. This has got to get fixed. It's got to be moved forward. But uh, if our strategy is to get this done, then let's do it from a position of strength. Why don't we have all the rest of the world with us on this stuff? And, you know, why aren't we in TPP? You know, why don't we have the trade deals done with NAFTA? And I think the president would respond, it's been done a year, and yet we don't have it out of the House, and, you know, the the speaker hasn't moved it forward, and, and that's hurt us in this. And and, uh, and I think that's the way this thing would, would be a give and take. I think he'd say, let's get the NAFTA done. We're moving forward. We'll have uh, those folks on board with us. We've got a deal with Japan happening right now, which was a significant part of the TPP. And I think he would point to that because now we're going to be able to start selling beef again in, in Japan, which is a, was a significant part of the total market 
in the the, uh, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership arrangements that they decided they weren't going to go through with. And the fact that China is at the table right now and that they've got phase one, which is being negotiated right now, and they hope to have inked shortly, uh, I think he would point to that and say, we're getting there, stick with me, it's going to be better than what it was before. And based on the way USMCA came out, I think he's right. So how much of this, from your observation, is about trade, and how much of this really is about national security? There are different segments of it. Uh, with regard to the actual trade on products day-to-day, whether it's our ag products moving in or whether it's some of their day-to-day products being sold in the United States, that really is a trade issue and having fair trade back and forth. When it comes to some of the, the technology companies, and Huawei in particular comes to mind, Huawei's a telecommunications and an electronics company that is putting in fifth-gen Internet services, but they're also providing equipment, software, and so forth, to telecoms and so forth. That is a national security issue, and they are separate from one another. Huawei cannot be allowed to be in our country, and in other countries where Huawei is now, we have to find workarounds because they literally cannot be a trusted part of any communications network that we are a part of, uh, and that is for national security purposes. And I can't go much farther into it, but I, I do chair the Subcommittee on Cybersecurity uh, in the United States Senate. I'm on the Armed Services Committee, of which that is a subcommittee of, and I, I just share with you that based on everything we're seeing, Huawei has no place in the United States today with regard to being in part of our, our telecommunications network. simply can't be allowed. I'd ask you to peer into the Mike Rounds crystal ball and tell me that now we're in the fiscal year 20. Does the fiscal year 20 budget happen in calendar year 19, or does it carry into calendar year 20? You know, I, I have this fear that it may very well be in the next calendar year. I did not support this continuing resolution that we're on right now. I feel very strongly that we should have addressed the issues that are slowing us down and getting the appropriations process done at this point. It should have been done before October 1st. Uh, the issues clearly are funding on defense that might very well be utilized for building the wall on the southern border or in homeland security where there is funding established for the wall on the southern border. And this is what's holding up the appropriations process. It's not going away. And the longer we kick the can down the road in, in terms of continuing appropriations, uh, the worse it gets. The cost to the American taxpayer in terms of additional expenses is close to $5 billion on a quarterly basis for doing a continuing resolution. And that's because these contracts, which are in place in order to start and stop them back and forth and not be able to revise the contracts, the net cost, according to the most recent information I've received, adds about $5 billion in extra expense to our costs uh, you know, on a quarterly basis. So for me, I can't support continuing resolutions. We need to get through it. And, uh, you know, this is the utter negotiation. And, the you know, you've got divided government. Nobody gets everything they want. But uh, to simply kick the can down the road and to do another continuing resolution works to no one's benefit. I think there may very well be some people up here that think that chaos is a politically good thing if you want change. I don't believe in that. I think people sent us here to get the job done, and that means doing the appropriations on time and with some consistency so everybody knows what is going to be spent by the federal government in advance of when it's going to be spent. Senator, until you introduced legislation, I wasn't aware that you could go to the meat case and buy a product that had a label that said product of the USA that 
wasn't from the USA. That's right. And isn't that about as close to false advertising as you're ever going to get? Here's what we found. You can have product to the USA on a meat product where the livestock come from out of the country. They're brought into the country as uh, perhaps hanging carcasses uh, or boxed beef. And when it comes in, as long as it is processed again in the United States, it gets to have that label. And I think that's false advertising. So what uh, Senator Thune and I have proposed is that if you want to use that label, and this is a voluntary program to use the label, you know, a product of the USA. If you want to use that label, it's born, raised, and processed in the United States. That way, folks that are here that want to buy U.S. beef, uh, if they're in South Dakota and they'd rather have some of that high-quality stuff that we do in the upper Midwest, uh, then they ought to be able to look at that and say that's a USA product, and it's got a label on it, and I can trust it. But the last thing in the world they want to do is trying to support their local producers, uh, buy a product that says, you know, product of the USA, and then find out that what was really the product of the USA was the fact that since it was shipped into the United States, unboxed and reboxed, it could have come from any other part of the world. And um, I like what we do here to provide high-quality beef, and I think we ought to be promoting it. And I don't think there's any problem with the World Trade Organization, the WTO, which causes all the problem with the country of origin labeling that we've tried to do in the past. Um, this is a voluntary program, and we think this meets the standards that WTO would offer because Canada does it already. Is this a viable compromise? No question about it in my mind. Now, I know that there's going to be some folks out there that probably are in the business of bringing in stuff from overseas, processing it, and selling it as a product of the USA, but... I just don't think they should use that label, and I don't think they should be able to market it that way. I think truth in, uh, in advertising is something we take pretty seriously in the United States, and I think it would help our producers because it's great to be able to advertise that it's truly a U.S. product. I went so far when I was governor, we created a program called South Dakota Certified Beef. I think it might have been a little ahead of its time, but it was born, raised, bred, and processed in South Dakota, and it met a series of standards that assured people that it was of the highest quality. It's kind of like calling choice, you know. Since we couldn't use the term choice, <laughs> we thought South Dakota Certified was the next best. And, and I think the same thing applies here. We ought to be able to market product of the USA in the U.S., and we should be able to assure consumers that that product was born in the United States, it was raised in the United States, fed in the United States, and processed in the United States, not just brought in, unboxed, and reboxed, and sent back out again. Since you brought that up with regard to the label, the Cattlemen's Beef Association is asking for a clear definition of beef, and they would like to delineate, obviously, between plant-based and lab-based proteins and those meats that came from animals. Makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, a little bit of South Dakota common sense goes a long way, but here in Washington, D.C., sometimes we don't have that. But folks in the Midwest, they get it. They'd love to have some of the stuff actually in the English language mean what it says it is. And I mean, when we talk about beef and we talk about true meat products, I think most people would say, I know what that is. It, you know, it, it's from livestock. It's not something that was, uh, you know, built uh, in, in a laboratory. I sure have no objections to what they want to get done there as well. doesn't mean that the other folks can't continue to play around and try to come up with substitutes, but I'll tell you what, a good ribeye, <laughs> a marbled ribeye, I get hungry just thinking about it, but the last thing in the world I want is to have people starting to play around and uh, suggesting that it's something that it's not. And I think, you know, about the first time somebody gets something that was advertised as a replacement but not really well advertised, they get into it and they find out that maybe it doesn't have that quality that they want. It makes them wonder whether or not they got a good piece of meat or not. And uh, I don't want that to happen. 
And I think as long as there's a way to make it very clear that we have real milk, just as an example, and we have real cheese and we have real butter, uh, I think if we need a definition, it's crazy that we do, but if we need a definition for real meat, uh, then so be it. Let's get on with it. Senator, the renewable fuels industry, some corn and soybean farmers are obviously concerned about the EPA's action on small refinery exemptions. They take exception to the EPA's estimated waivers and their proposal. They'd like to see a reflection of actually volume lost because of the SREs. Is it time for legislation on this or can the administration still fix it? I was in the office with the president, and the president absolutely wants to fix it. He told us flat out, if the law says 15 billion gallons, it ought to be 15 billion gallons that we're, that we're producing and, and, and mixing in the renewable fuel standard. And uh, I was in there when he, when he actually got the, the administrator of the EPA on the phone with us, and there were a number of us senators that were in the room, and uh, he just said, let's fix this thing. They're right. If it says 15 billion gallons, we ought to be doing 15 billion gallons. And uh, when the administrator kind of said, well, you know, we got issues here, he says, I don't care. He said, I want $15 billion and I think we can make that work. Why don't you get this thing done and let me know? Well, right now those rules are out, and they're out until I think the 29th of November or somewhere in that neighborhood, and there's a chance for producers and, and groups to comment on them. Uh, some of the producers and groups have said they don't know that the way that the EPA has come through on this is going to give us what we need. Bottom line, we're going to go back in. We're going to have to talk to the president again. He may have to kick some butt, but the reality is we're going to get 15 billion gallons, and they can do it internally, and it's not that hard. This is not, I don't think this is rocket science. Bottom line is if you're going to give small refinery uh, exemptions out there, look at what you've done in the past, and if it's, you know, if they've given 1.4 billion gallons in exemptions, then you better start out by everybody else picking up that 1.4 billion, and when you get right down to, you know, if you actually are going to miss it a little bit, then prorate it and let them know that come one way or another, you're going to meet the 15 billion gallons. And, you know, you got a two-step program. Number one, estimate what it's going to be. And if you miss the mark, prorate the number of gallons that they actually get to, to be exempted from. And remember, this small refinery exemption, that says that these guys are so small and they're so broke that they can't afford to mix. And that's just with all due respect, that's malarkey in a lot of cases. We don't want to lose refineries, and neither does the president. He made that clear. Because if you lose a refinery, you never get it back again. But I don't want to lose ethanol plants either. We did a billion gallons in ethanol sales last year in South Dakota. I think that's about 7% of the total that's been done in the United States. When you make a commitment that says you know, you're going to have 15 billion gallons coming through, and then you don't, the market for ethanol goes down. And that means that that corn value goes down. And that's not healthy at all. So I think the president really wants to get this done. And uh, I think as long as we continue to communicate directly with the president, I think he's going to make it real clear to the EPA, come one way or another, they're going to get this thing completed, and he's going to want to see results on it. Uh, I think he gets it. There's another piece on there we should talk about, though. This renewable fuel standard goes away for corn in 2022. And between now and then, what we've got to be able to do is to share with the American public just how good ethanol is and that it is a real enhancer to a petroleum product and that the vast majority of the engines that are being produced today can handle a significant percentage of ethanol. And the reason why we want to push this is because if you add ethanol, this alcohol, to gasoline, you improve the octane rating. 
and a lot of these smaller engines in the future are going to need a higher octane fuel. And this is the most inexpensive way of boosting octane that we've got available for us today. Now, our, our friends that, that are in the petroleum industry would rather be able to either, number one, own those ethanol plants themselves, which means they'd like to buy them for pennies on the dollars if we don't make it till 2022, or second of all, they'd like to have their own product enhance uh, the octane rating. I think there's a middle ground there in which producer-owned co-ops with ethanol facilities can add you know, anywhere from 20 to 30% of a gallon of fuel and improve the ethanol rating, make that product better, and be a partner with the petroleum industry in providing liquid fuels in the United States for a long time to come. Senator Rounds, we want to thank you so much for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and, sir, you have the last word today. Look, I just appreciate what everybody's been going through in the upper Midwest. I, I, I just tell you, know, you want strong families, which means you've got to be able to stay on the farm if you're on the farm. But they add so much value to small communities across the upper Midwest because what farmers bring in, they spend, and they turn it over time and time again. And that moves back through your local communities, and it eventually gets in to your larger communities. But it also means that there's iron that's on those lots right now that's not moving. When the farmer doesn't make a profit, he can't buy the pickup, he can't buy the combine, he can't buy the tractor. And that hurts the rest of the economy as well. So this is one area where we truly are producing something and we can, we can compete with anybody in the world if given the opportunity and if we get fair trade policies. So let's focus back in once again on getting those fair trade policies put together. Let's support the president and what he's trying to get done with China. Let's give him every tool available to try to get that job done as soon as possible. Our thanks to South Dakota U.S. Senator Mike Rounds, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is working toward a global subsidy ceasefire. Learn more about the Zero for Zero plan at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nelly.